Hey everybody, it's Percussion Podcast. It's Casey Cangelosi here on January 17th. Oh yeah, yes, we're recording January 17th and you're probably listening to this on, what did you say, Carly? January 28th. 28th, thank you very much. And it's episode 269. And with me as usual, well, we got Ksenia Komjanovic. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, Casey, how are you doing? Good, how's that New Year's resolution going? You are the nicest human being alive, and I'm doing really well. I stuck with it. I'm really nice to you now. <laughs> You've stuck with it for uh, over a week. That's really impressive. That's better than most people. I know. I, I think I also just haven't talked to you in a, a week. That's why I'm successful. I that's know, the that's secret. <laughs> <laughs> and also Ben Charles is here. Hey, Ben. Hey, Casey. Sorry, I was muted. It took me a second. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Hey, the Mudra recording came out uh, really nice. Oh, thanks. Yeah, uh, I was really pleased. I got together a, a group of pros. We rehearsed for like an hour, literally just like one hour did two takes and that was it. I remember you I remember you saying you were going to do that and, and my thinking was gosh even if I could learn you know it, even if I really practiced the heck out of one of those parts I'd still want a lot of rehearsal time because I think it's really tricky how it goes together so yeah bravo to you and all of them yeah thanks it, it's funny like when the whole pandemic started we were talking about like what are you going to do to be productive in the pandemic and I kind of like said like you know oh I set my practice bed in front of the tv so I can practice snare drum exercises for hours and and you kind of roasted me on it, like what you're going to practice, like that's your, but yeah, I did it. Got <laughs> <laughs> cool. a good recording, so please. It sounds really good. And Carly Vina's here too. Hey, Carly. Yeah. Hey, Casey. How's it going? Good, good, good. What happened on release date today? Yeah, a couple of things, actually. See, I thought this was interesting. On January 28th, way back in 1936, um, it was two days after Joseph Stalin went to the opera to see Lady Macbeth by Shostakovich, the 28th. So he went on the 26th. But on the 28th, the Communist Party heavily criticized and effectively banned the opera in an editorial that was titled Muddle Instead of Music. Um, it wasn't the premiere of the opera. In fact, Lady Macbeth had had a lot of success. Um, it was premiered in Leningrad two years earlier, and it had had almost 200 performances just in those two years in the Soviet Union, in Copenhagen, in Prague, in New York, and in London. So it was like everything was going great until Stalin saw the opera. So this editorial said that um, it, it said singing has been replaced by shrieking. It said the music quacks, hoots, growls, and gasps to express the love scenes as naturally as possible. And uh, that the opera was successful abroad only because it had been tickling the perverted taste of the bourgeoisie. I practiced this word. Can anybody say that for me? Bourgeoisie. There it is. There it is. Bourgeoisie with its fidgety, screaming, neurotic music. Um, so that's what this this lovely review of the opera said. Um, Lady Macbeth, a little bit of background for anybody that doesn't know about it, was based on the novel by Nikolai Leskov, which had been published in 1865. And the opera tells the story of Katerina Ismailova, who is the wife of a provincial merchant and mill owner. And long story short, she's kind of caught in a love triangle between her husband her lover, her father-in-law, and her lover's mistress. And in true tragic opera fashion, everybody is dead by the end of the show at her hands. So um, that's, in a nutshell, that's what happens. The original novel depicts Katerina as like a cold, murderous monster, and you wouldn't really be sympathetic to her. But in Shostakovich's adaptation, 
the audience is more likely to kind of see it from her side and say, well, this is just the inevitable thing she had to do in her situation. So although it's never been expressly stated, um, it seems like it's most likely that Stalin and the Communist Party didn't like the sex scenes in the opera, that that was the offensive part. But um, it could have also been that Stalin was offended by a likeness between himself and the, the father-in-law, Boris, um, or maybe between himself and a police chief in the opera who indiscriminately arrests people for their beliefs. Um, after this review, actually, the opera vanished almost overnight, like it was gone. You couldn't, couldn't hear it anymore. Shostakovich never wrote another opera after this again. But in 1963, he revised Lady Macbeth and retitled it after the main character, Katerina Ismailova. Um, publicly, he always maintained this re revision, like that's the definitive version of the work. That's the only version. That's the real one. But then in private, it's said that he asked Rostrop Rostropovich, the conductor, to record the original score, the 1932 version, um, which he did in 1979. And now that's kind of we're back to the original. That's what if you go and hear Lady Macbeth at the opera, that's what you would hear. Um, so I thought all of that was interesting. And actually, I've never seen the opera. Anybody see it? Not in person. No, you know, only only read the things that um, along the lines that, that you mentioned. Yeah, no, I feel I'm like if, if any of our young listeners want to dive into someone's, uh, I don't know, like background, man, Shostakovich is so heavy I mean, really really interesting but also also heavy like i feel like i learned more about <laughs> european history and world war ii and I, I mean just so much about that just from shostakovich yeah and my uh music appreciation class i do a unit <clears throat> on politics and music and we talk about shostakovich among other things uh including vietnam war protest music that's a different story but Shostakovich is really interesting because basically every single work that he did after this either put him in favor of the government or took him out of favor of the government. Uh, and his 10th symphony is actually, uh, it was premiered after Stalin died and his 10th symphony is a musical portrait of Stalin and especially the scherzo movement. You can hear the sort of brutality of Stalin. But my favorite thing about this opera that Carly's talking about is uh, the initial reviews were actually positive. And then after Stalin saw it and hated it, the reviewers had to go back and retract their reviews. And they basically said, oh, we, the first listening, we missed all this stuff. And it's, it's actually really terrible, but it's funny that it was actually initially reviewed positively. And then afterward, they had to like twist their words to fit what the government wanted them to say. Ksenia, why are your people all like that? I came from as far away from Russia as as you are probably, but uh, I'll tell you. No, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just remember this uh, detail from reading a sort of a romance bio of Shostakovich that he used to. Um, so he used to live in an apartment complex, I think, where there were a lot of artists who just started disappearing overnight, and. Um, he, in order to not disturb, because he was expecting the same to come for him, to not disturb his wife and uh, daughter, I believe, um, he would stand outside with a little bag with just the necessities and smoking all night, waiting by the elevator for someone to come to take him away, for like the mm -hmm. government to take him away. It didn't happen, luckily for him, but they did stand above his head with Stalin's picture above uh, his work desk and expected him to, to compose that way, so. 
I read, you know, just like you know, like you said, disappearing artists, and you know, yeah, just of course you can look up the list to like people who we know were executed or people who just vanished overnight, and we don't know what happened to them. But of course, a lot of them were artists, writers, news reporters, people like that, composers, and um, supposedly Stalin. The, the eeriest thing I've ever read was that he he had his like list of people to have executed or kidnapped or taken away for the day or whatever. So it's a list of names that are people to be acted upon and he would just cross one of them out, like spare this one person. And that made him feel, I guess, really like powerful. It's like a person he chose to die. He would just know I'm deciding to spare you now today. Wow, so generous. I don't know, that was, I think that was, for some reason, I know he's saving someone there, but it's like this really eerie that that's what he, I don't know, found so, uh, so, uh, you know, I don't know, he enjoyed that somehow. So let's introduce our guest. Nice job, Carly. That was, that was. Good, good segue. segue. <laughs> I, I have a, I have a couple lighter ones because this was. Oh, good. Perfect. Quick, quick, super quick. In 1977, uh, January 28th, Joey Fatone of NSYNC was born. I don't know if that might be a big deal for some people. <laughs> I don't know. That's okay. not lighter. That's not lighter, Carly. That's way worse than what we just talked about. Yeah, that's worse. That's a that's far more bigger tragedy and offense. <laughs> okay, hold on though. This is a big coincidence. I found that on nineteen in nineteen eighty, same day, Nick Carter of the Backstreet Boys was born. Now that's news. <laughs> Double header. It's hard to find news, isn't it? Sometimes, see, I found those two things. Then I found, guys, today, January twenty eighth, is National Kazoo Day. Wow, really? I like at least that. it's music related. That is music related. Then I found this stuff about Shostakovich. I was like, okay, at least. Hey, how about this background then? Wait, who is that? Oh, you don't know who that is? <laughs> I don't know who that is. The Beebs. Oh. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'm sorry. You know, our guest today, she's assistant professor of percussion at the University of Northern Colorado. She's a two-time recipient of a Fulbright scholarship to Munich, Germany, and she studied with some of the big orchestral hotshots out there like Chris Lamb, Duncan Patton, and one of our favorites, Stephen Schick, and also the very famous legendary frame drummer, Glenn Velez, and it's Dr. Julie Strom. How's it going, Julie? It's going awesome. It's great to listen to you guys and your banter. Thanks for having me. A lot of banter. Thanks for thanks for enduring that. That was a that was a particularly tough one. That was fun. Good deal. Good deal. Well, I have to give some credit due to our buddy uh, Pete Pete Zambito. I heard Julie on Pete's percussion podcast. Pete has been on the show. We've all been on Pete's show. Pete's a good friend of the show and if you if you don't get enough percussion podcasts in your life from us go check out or even if you do go check out pete's percussion podcasts or petezambito.com you could search google and find him really really quick he runs a really great podcast and of course i saw julie's presentation at PASIC, so that put her on kind of our our list and then I heard her some on Pete's episode and I thought oh this is really great we should we should totally uh get her during this time and um yeah, Julie, how are you? Uh, how are you doing during all the crazy, <laughs> the craziness right now? Life's a little extra crazy. It is. It is. I think um, we've kind of, maybe I'm speaking for everybody, but we've kind of adapted to the most abnormal normal. <laughs> like this is this is somehow what our normal is, and it's still sometimes you look around and think that is so not normal. <laughs> Yeah. You know, when you see a bunch of kids getting into a car to go to softball practice and they're all wearing masks, it's like, this is so not normal, but 
in the grand scheme of things, uh, it's uh, we're we're working with it. We're we're dealing. <laughs> Cool, cool, cool. Well, I, I feel like you have so much to say. So I want to I want to kind of dive right into it. And I, I think, um, you know, in, in general, I mean, of course, you said a whole lot on Pete's episode and also at your PASIC clinic. But I, I kind of tried to, you know, narrow things down into some questions that would be, I don't know, like broadly useful. And I, I guess the first thing I would just ask you is what do, what do you think is so important that musicians really need to know outside of the practice room? Well, you know, this is something that I've um, kind of, this has become like closer to my heart in the last, uh, in the last 10 years post-college is um, all of this knowledge that I've gained post-college. And what I've realized is that, okay, so ultimately we're, we're total nerds, right? I mean, we are the definition of a nerd, the verb definition of a nerd is to engage obsessively in a technical field with extreme attention to detail. That's what we do, right? That's what we as musicians do. We practice hours on end, we practice to perfect, we perfect to perform. And then it was like, I had this mind blowing reality years after I was actually finished with college with three degrees where I realized, you know what? Getting a job is about so much more than how you play. It's so much more than the practicing and the perfection and the performance. Um, yes, that can get your foot in the door, but sometimes actually that's the last thing that gets you in the door. Um, so I've kind of been um, thinking about, and this is kind of what the, the PASIC chat was about, um, this concept of what happens outside of the practice room and what we need to know that's not necessarily being taught in schools. I mean, and, and you listed off some of these phenomenal professors um, who I've who I've studied with, and it's of no fault of theirs. It's just kind of the the field we're in that we they they are there to to teach us how to play, and um, I think it's it I think it's pretty rare that at that at universities and educational systems nowadays they're talking about the entire industry as a whole. And what we need to be talking about is, okay, where are you going to go after you're finished with school? Location, judiciously, prudently choosing a location to live in, thinking about the competition there, what's the supply and demand? Then networking, once you get there, right? You want to be, put yourself out there, but you got to be careful not to step on people's toes. You got to understand that there's a pecking order. And then being different, you have to be different. I, I feel like we're kind of in this rut of impersonating versus creating, um, you know, especially with, with YouTube and videos and, and all the technology we have nowadays, you know, we can pull videos up of, of all of you all, you know, and, and my students will pull up a video of Casey Cangelosi and say, okay, I'm gonna play that piece exactly like he plays it. And that's phenomenal if they can. But when can, you know, when can we go beyond impersonating to really get back to creating as musicians and understanding that we're artists? And then the last thing I think about getting outside of the box, getting outside of the practice room is something that can be taught. And that's just being easygoing and chill and kind. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen, uh, I'm also the assistant personnel manager at the Colorado Symphony. So I do all of the hiring for our, our substitute musicians. And um, I was a little 
I've been a little surprised at times. Um, just the, the emails that I'll get or um, how somebody can, can treat somebody who's, who's essentially offering them work. Um, so just being easygoing and kind can do so much for you. I was shocked once um, at um, old university I used to work at Concord University, which was a lovely, you know, first teaching experience and um, sort of where I put my time where one might have done a DMA, but I, I was lucky enough to get hired as an adjunct and stayed there for uh, six years and gained, gained a lot of experience and what uh, what maybe some people would consider the unequivalency um, in, in, in some uh, mindsets. But uh, yeah, I was sometimes shocked at the amount of entitlement. Like I was an adjunct there working, geez, I mean, there was one semester I was teaching 25 credit hours, jazz band, percussion ensemble, all the lessons, music history, um, one of the theory classes, jazz improv, music tech, I was doing like all those at once. And, um, you know, we'd have an adjunct come in, um, coming in one day a week and they were like offended they didn't have their own office like their own dedicated office that was just theirs and i don't know it's just stuff like that i, I don't know is that is that sort of along the lines you're thinking could you yeah. give us an example of maybe like a do and a, a do not that you've experienced as a personnel manager that that's exactly it that's yeah. really it and um of course this is you know we're talking grand scheme we're majorly generalizing um because certainly not everybody is like that but um but i I have, you know, that really is the word entitlement, and um, and it's unfortunately not not going to get anybody anywhere, um, you know, just because we may have studied with the best players in the world, actually doesn't mean anything, you know. If if you play wonderfully, but you're a total jerk, and you're trying to work in the freelance, you know, more, more specifically, freelance industry forget it, you know, forget it. You just, you won't get called back. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Julia, I remember in your basic chat, you were talking about um, a couple of specific emails and email I find is a, a whole um, channel where rudeness has the major potential to crop up, right? And I, what I found since I started teaching um, years ago was that students, you know, high school, college students these days, like don't necessarily know how to properly write an email in a way that's not offensive. And I don't know, not that like, oh, kids these days and I'm so old, but I don't know if it comes from like, I think all of us sitting here in this room grew up at a time where we wrote letters by hand, like at least little thank you notes to our relatives or or something. And you know, there's a greeting and a, a nice, like a, I hope you're doing well or Merry Christmas or whatever, something like a nicety. And then the sub, like the, the whole body of the letter and a thank you, or, you know, sincerely something, and your name. I, my question for you is, do you address this with your students? And if so, how? And can you teach us all how to teach our students how to write good emails? Sure. <laughs> yeah, actually, we we do this, um, at, when I say regular basis, I say at, at least once a semester, we have a pretty significant chat about, um, about the business of music, because um, although I do think more universities have um, added music business programs, I know my university is one of them. I mean, we're just, I mean, we are fresh into our second year, second or third year of, of, a, of a music business major. Even though we, uh, even though more universities are adding these programs um, and degrees, I still think um, 
I still think in a way musicians themselves are, are still trying to learn and navigate the business of music, right? Because we're artists, right? We, we practice and, you know, we don't have bosses. Like who has a boss, you know? <laughs> um, and so I, I, I take, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, really specific things that need to be talked about. And that's resume writing, resume versus CV and, and grants and applications and emails. Um, and it's, in, it's really interesting. And I'll, I'll call my students out on it too. If they send me an email that is, is somehow curt or um, informal or whatever it is that, that kind of strikes me, Sometimes I'll just make them aware of it. You know, it might be fine to do to me. It might be fine to write that kind of email to myself, but they might just not have an awareness that that it may be inappropriate in a different context or to a different directed at a different person. Um, you know, at, at my university, it's pretty standard to call people Doctor Blah 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 or Mister or Mrs. Blah Blah Blah. Um, at a lot of universities, it's not. You go by first name. Does that mean though that you should get out in the real world and you know be writing somebody for the first time who has a you know DMA and address them by Rob? Probably not, you know. So um, so it's it's an awareness that they need to have because it's a it's a major jump going from high school into the real world. Yet we've got this whole four minimum four years in between where they're actually not being taught in through most most often not through a curriculum so we kind of have to be uh, we're the ones who have to be eager as teachers to make sure that they have this information because we've we've seen it right we've seen our own colleagues um, maybe have this kind of in, entitled nature or um, or treat people a certain way and I think it's our duty as educators to go so far beyond paradiddles yeah, absolutely. I, I like that you mentioned too um, resumes and CVs because I remember our our old professor from University of Miami, Matt Strauss, probably had all three. Ksenia Ben and I at one point write it. We had to write a CV, turn it in. He reviewed it, and had he not had us do that, like first job application would come around, and I'd be like, "Oh no, like <laughs> this is such a huge task." But we had gone through that process. That was um, yeah, that was cool. How you called him your old professor. Yeah, I should correct like probably. Um, who's you, editing you bump this the one again? <laughs> bump the volume up in that, Ksenia. Former <laughs> professor, our dear esteemed former professor. We'd oh, like Carly's just influenced by my poor English. That's why I would have said old professor. That's <laughs> fine. It's fine. It's okay. Don't worry. That's what we do in Croatia, Russia. <laughs> well, I had sort of a, a follow-up question to this. Um, I had a little like before we started recording. I made this joke of like you know sometimes you apply for a job and you look and you're like oh that guy got it I should have gotten it over him but in Julie's case when I I looked at who got the job for Northern Colorado I was like okay that's that's fine she definitely deserves that over me um but when I look at someone's teachers like when I look at you know oh so and so studied with Alan Abel like I know what to expect they're going to be an awesome like orchestral percussionist or when I look at a Steve Schick student I it's like okay they're gonna you know play the hell out of you know Safa or something like that and when I looked at Julie's list of teachers I was like okay, like, <laughs> we're talking someone serious here. Um, and even going back to like your North Carolina days with Rick Dior, who uh, my friend Michael D'Angelo studied with, and I've never met Rick, but 
Uh, that guy's students are, as far as I'm concerned, some of the best in the world. Um, but Julie, all your teachers seem so different. Uh, and so could you talk about, and we've kind of spoken a bit about, you know, forging your own identity, but could you go about how you took this, you know, path of orchestral percussion and avant-garde multi-percussion and solo percussion and all these different venues and, and put them together into the Julie that we know today? Sure. Well, and if you know who that is, then, then I'd be glad to know because I'm not sure who I am <laughs> and when, when it comes to what I like and what I don't like. You know, I, I, the, the short answer is I just get bored. So I just kind of move on to, to something that, that piques my interest. Um, and I don't know, I kind of attribute that a little bit to I've moved 22 times before I was 22. And so I've just lived a lot of places. And so I've had a lot of teachers, just even in those childhood moves, I had so many teachers. So I was constantly used to um, ruffling the feathers and, you know, and digging things up and totally changing my technique. And, um, and I enjoyed that. And I think that's kind of what made me, um, at least what makes me feel kind of malleable and, and versatile a little bit. Um, so when, I mean, when I went to study with, with Chris Lamb in New York, it was kind of this, I mean, there is of course an expectation that you're gonna do pr primarily orchestral work. And that's what we did and it was phenomenal and, and I loved it and it developed my technique to a, to a huge, you know, huge extent. And then I remember when he looked at me my junior year, end of my junior year, and he said, you know, in the middle, middle of the lesson, he just says, you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to become an orchestral musician. And I thought, what am I doing here then? Like, I'm a failure. I'm, what, what am I doing? And it wasn't until after my senior recital. So I went an entire year more before I asked him, uh, the day after my senior recital, what, hey, what did you mean when you said that? And he said, you, you just got too much going on. Like that's, it's just, it's not that you can't do that. It's just, that's not going to be enough for you. You're going to want to do more. And then that's when, um, that's when I went to study in, in Germany and my eyes were opened to this whole world of solo percussion with Peter Sadlow and, um, and you know, working alongside um, Ramon Kurfs and and people from from Munich and and on the orchestral side of things too, but it was just kind of expanding. Um, okay, well, I could do some orchestral and then I could do some solo and I could and I liked the good thing is that I liked all of it and the bad thing is that I liked all of it because I never became a specialist, right? I, I so I nowadays I kind of preach this whole like general be a generalist over a specialist because a I think you're more marketable that way if you can play everything you just pick up pick up anything and be open to anything whether it's you know a, a, a Broadway show or a church service that's you know at the end of the day we all have to make money and so if we don't have something like myself, I didn't have one particular aim. I didn't have one thing that I wanted to go for because I just enjoyed all of the things I had been taught by all the, all of my teachers. I, I've kind of embraced that. And I realized that maybe, at least for me, that's a good thing now. Um, I'm realizing that I enjoy doing a lot of things. I enjoy being, um, being marketable and, and a generalist as I kind of call it, so. 
Could you please tell us a little bit more about what it was like to study with Sadlo? Why did you go to him specifically? And we've heard a lot of stories of how he's changed um, over the years, but I'd love to know what was your experience like. Right. Well, Peter, the sadly, the late Peter, um, he died about th three or four years ago now. Um, I, I initially went to Germany um, uh, for the summer program at Schleswig-Holstein. And um, so I was studying there with Reiner Siegers and uh, of the Berlin Philharmonic. And I had heard about this guy, Peter Sadlow, Peter Sadlow, Peter Sadlow. And, um, and I had a few friends who were living in Munich at the time. And I thought, okay, I really want to check this guy out. So I, I initially did um, I, I was still a junior at Manhattan School of Music at this point. So I initially went over for like a two week masterclass with Sadlow and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I, I loved how just integrated the whole thing it was. It was like a lifestyle. I mean, I, I was the only female. He really discouraged female. He, he only had females at, at uh, Mozarteum Salzburg. And so I, he encouraged me to go to the Mozarteum, but I had friends in Munich. So I said, no, I'd really like to be part of, of the, of, you know, the Hochschule in Munich. And he eventually said, okay, fine, but you're going to be the only woman. And I absolutely loved it. We had this studio on the outside of Munich and there was a beer fridge. And I mean, it was the most crude place to walk into, but it was like, living it at the end. And I think any true musician who makes a career out of it at some point has to just kind of live, eat and breathe music. And, and, and especially, especially in your like, you know, your formative years where you're just practicing, practicing, practicing and, and figuring it all out. And those were those years. Um, and he'd walk into lessons with a beer in one hand and a cigar in the other. And, you know, then, he'd go yell at all of the boy students and say, you know, she can play it like you, you know, you can't. And I mean, it was the craziest experience, but it was so, so, so incredible. Um, so just to clarify, what, why was it a big deal that you were the only female in uh, Munich? Because I mean, that's what most girls who go and study percussion now sure. are. Encounter sure. well. Well, if you if if you'd ever walked into the building, then you might kind of know. <laughs> and, I mean, when I say crude, I mean it was, and I laugh because it just doesn't it doesn't even phase me whatsoever. Because I think, like us, you know, as women, we're so used to it, right? We are in a male dominated industry, and so we're we're just used to it. But you know, you walk in and there are probably. 12 you know naked women like calendars all over the walls and it just reeks of cigarette smoke and there are beer bottles every it's like walking into a like a bachelor pad you know like a frat house it was a frat house <laughs> wow standards in munich back then. that's awesome is it is it almost like walking into a podcast and there's justin bieber as the background <laughs> exactly it'll never be as offensive it's but, more like a right. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you. 
Well, I, I also wanted to ask you, I mean, speaking of uh, your, your basic talk and kind of this beyond the practice room idea, what, what are some of the things, and you already talked about um, some of the, the ways to be personable and the way to uh, approach people and the way to not come off sounding entitled, but um, like, like how many traditional type things do you think we need to keep? And to the contrary, what new things do we need to be implementing? I mean, even if it's beyond personality, even if it's into like rep or instruments, I think I remember you threw a little shade at the 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 rise in marimba rep, which I'd love if you did that again, because Ben like considers himself like a marimba, like all-star and that'd be great. What? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're slowing that, you're slowing that mute button, buddy. No, I was, giving, I was giving you a chance that time to see where you were going. <laughs> no, that was, a, it was just a, another fake, another fake insult. A lot of sarcasm on the show. Uh, well, maybe I'll leave the marimba chat to, to the side for, for a minute. We'll talk sure. about other, other tra traditional things and we'll kind of see um, if I put my phone in my mouth. Um, so... <laughs> With, you know, tradition, I mean, the first thing I think of is, is this article that I, I think we're going to be discussing at some point. And that's that one, I think the terminology in general is, I think we're kind of due for a change in terminology. Um, you know, people are messing now with art music versus classical, but I think just in our world of percussion, I think we're due. I think we're due to kind of take the reins and and just move the needle a little bit. Because right now, you know, if you Google percussion ensemble, it doesn't know what you're talking about. It will pull up some music. It will pull up some nonsense. It doesn't even know what that is, right? So when you say to, I mean, I most of my friends are non-musicians. If I say to to my friend, oh, you know, my students have a percussion ensemble concert, it's kind of like, what is that? And, um, you know, or worse yet, in the article, the, it was called, what did they say? Percussion-based chamber group. I mean, how hoity-toity and highbrow can that get? You know, I, I personally think we need to be moving more in the direction of, I mean, we are a band, right? If we're a percussion ensemble, maybe we just call ourselves a band, right? You know, we are musicians who are coming together in a group. Um, I think we kind of tend to get, I think a lot of people tend to get offended if, if, uh, if, if people say that, you know, classical music is, is highbrow or hoity-toity, but I don't think we're, we're doing ourselves a favor by still calling ourselves things, you know, in a word or a phrase that was used so many, so many years ago. So terminology is one thing that I think we could shift. Number two, visibility, I think is a really big thing. You know, percussion ensembles, um, for lack of a better word, literally, um, percussion ensembles are, you know, are the visibility I think is an issue. You know, we want to be seen by the masses, right? We want to be accepted by everybody, yet, the percussion ensembles are formed in school, right? I'm talking in generalizing percussion ensembles are formed with buddies in school and they leave school and then they're right back at my doorstep playing for my master classes, playing for my clinics because they have nowhere else to play. They don't have the instruments or they don't have the funding. And so it's almost like we're kind of keeping, keeping ourselves within this academic, underneath this academic umbrella 
and we really just need to be seen. We just need to be acknowledged. We need recognition and we need vis visibility. I'm not saying I have the answer for how, how to get there, but I do think that's part of tradition um, that we need to start shifting to be seen and appreciated more by the masses. Now, some people I don't think really care about seeing, being seen by the, by the masses or appreciated by the masses. Um, but I got to a point, let's just say, you know, I got to a point with uh, contemporary music, say where I was playing, you know, extreme contemporary music and, you know, practicing for three or four months on whatever piece leading up to something, a gazillion instruments, schlepping the instruments to a concert to play for 10 people. And it just wore me out. I just, it, it, it made me lose my passion for the music, for that particular type of music. And I'm massively generalizing, of course, you know, because I still love a lot of it and play a lot of it. Um, but it, it's just, it's the concept of, of visibility. It's the concept of acknowledgement. Um, you know, traditionally, what's another thing, you know, being looked at so formally, we, why are we still wearing the same type of clothing that we did, you know, 30, 40 years ago? Why are we still wearing, you know, black pants and matching brightly colored shirts and blazers and oh, vests? And like, you know, what if we actually just wore chucks and a t-shirt or, you know, scraggly, you know, you guys scraggly beards. And I mean, I think, I think it's just a question of, of tradition versus actually moving into the modern world. And I think we're trying to do two things at once. It's almost like we, we want to be seen and be modern, but we're still presenting ourselves in a really traditional way. You know, it's, it's interesting, like, as I, I, I think this is, of course, so important, you know, like the music department here at JMU survives well, largely in part because the marching band is so successful. You know, we have this 400 plus piece marching band that has a great following and the public really loves, but I, I don't think a lot of the, yeah, the, um, you know, the composition faculty, my friends on the composition faculty, I don't think they're saying like, oh yeah, the fight song, let's analyze the heck out of that. And, but it, I think there's, um, there's a comparison, uh, like say in the sciences, like, I don't think the forerunning uh, cosmologists are talking about how great of a scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson is, but they're really glad he exists and that he's so out in the public view and, and that he does so much for for science and, and how it's seen in public. So it's, it's so tricky in my mind because on one hand, I think the cutting edge will never be like super, super popular because it's, because part of being cutting edge means yeah, it's not really attainable. It's not very approachable. It's, it's not very palatable until you really understand it far, far, far down the line. It's like when I, um, if I'm ever visiting home in, uh, in Utah and my dad's teaching a math course, he teaches high level math courses. I mean, I literally, you know, he says, Hey, welcome to class. You know, last time we were talking about this. And then from that point on, I don't understand anything, like literally anything in the course, like, and they're writing numbers on the board and I'm like waiting for them to, you know, subtract two and like bring it to the other side or like, you know, do any arithmetic. And I just, there's none of it. It's so, 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 so above my head, but, but I guess that's what I mean. Like, I think it's, um, it's okay. Like, it's okay. If this 
part of us is over here doing this. And then like, like Julie's saying, we, we also advocate for some more Neil deGrasse Tyson's in our field. You know, we could always use more of those. They only help. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I, and I do want to make sure that it's known that we do need both. We absolutely need, need both. We can't, we can't do what we do without, um, without knowing that there is a foundation of tradition there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Julie, you, you broached the topic a bit about attire, and uh, we actually talked to Evelyn Glennie about this, and Evelyn Glennie is someone that is not af afraid to wear something uh, unconventional, shall we say, as a performer. And I, I remember I looked at your YouTube channel, and I saw a, a recording of, like, Ray-Bans, and I, I was like, the hell is she wearing? <laughs> and I clicked on it, and it looked like you did some sort of, like, Alice in Wonderland-themed recital. Um, so, and even just like the, the recording of you playing Bach, it's not like the most out there in the world thing you're wearing, but it's like maybe a, a bit unconventional. So could you tell us about your attire choices for matching those different repertoire or themed recitals? Sure. Well, the, the, um, the Alice in Wonderland thing came about, um, in Germany when I was doing my master's recital and I went to Peter Sadlow and I said, yeah, I'm just, I am so tired of people just wearing black and the whole hoopla go out and bow and peace and bow and play a piece of contrasting style and bow and oh got to play a multi-piece and oh I got to play I was so tired of just the like the the regiment of how how it was supposed to, a recital was supposed to go and so I I took the the text of Alice in Wonderland Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland and rewrote um, the whole thing so that it had to do with Alice falling down the rabbit hole and discovering this whole world of percussion. And, um, and then she goes through, she goes through the world of percussion. Um, and there was a narrator and I had AstroTurf and I had a fence and I, and, and my, my aunt, who is a pet professional seamstress, she, she, you know, made me an Alice in Wonderland costume, made me the whole, the whole dress. So, um, that was, uh, I, I did that for my master's recital and had it had, you know, the costuming and narration and lighting and fog machine and everything. And that's what got me just really excited to, um, to, to do that kind of performance ongoing. And I still have yet to do that, but it, it, um, it was the impetus for my, for my dissertation. So I, I believe it's either Ksenia or, or Carly, um, you wrote about theatrical percussion in your dissertation. Yeah, that was me. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that—that's what mine was about as well. So theater percussion, and um, you know, at the time I did my master's degree, it was not—it it was not such a thing to have all of these kind of extra sensory elements, lighting and costuming and all. You know, it was just the typical recital like everybody was supposed to play, and now. I think it's, I, I have yet to have a student come to me and, and want to play a traditional recital. They're only coming to me with concept oriented recitals. Um, so I've kind of got off topic here, but that was the whole reason initially for the Alice in Wonderland costume. Um, that was not just in my closet. <laughs> Fantastic. I, it's cool. It's, it's cool seeing rebonds out of context though. 
<laughs> well, yeah. it's, it's, to, it's to take away from the, you know, the rim clicks. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, distract you a little bit. No, but honestly, you know, when it comes to, to, to clothing I, and distractions, I know most people think, well, why, why do people wear all black? Why do classical musicians wear all black? And the common answer is because, you know, we want it to be about the music. We don't want to distract from the music. Um, and I, you know, I am first and foremost a person. <laughs> so I will wear what I want to wear. And if it distracts from the music, I mean, you know, I'm not wearing like crazy things, but I'm, I'm putting my personality forth. If I'm on stage, you know, I, I feel like I have a right to do that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And there's this, this idea of, you kind of just hit on it, like, oh, you know, as a performer, I don't want to distract from the music, but I can understand for something like Steve Reich, where it's not supposed to be super performer infused. Uh, but for a lot of, especially solo repertoire, I'm, I'm actually interested in the person's interpretation and how their interpretation will be different. And one of my favorites, like influences outside of music is the very famous designer, pardon my German pronunciation, Dieter Rams of uh, the company Brown, uh, or Braun if you're American, uh, B-R-A-U-N. And Dieter Rams uh, basically came up with this design language that's, uh, that's been passed down to different designers and it's what basically Apple uses to design products. And uh, the use of color and his work was really interesting. And you know, if you're designing things like hair dryers and coffee makers, you don't want everything to be super colorful because your house would be chaotic. So he stuck to very, neutral grays and blacks and things that would not uh, actually make the environment chaotic. And I was trying to find this quote in this book about him that I, I have that I love, but I couldn't find it in time. But basically he says, uh, when I do use color, it's actually very extraordinarily bright and it's, it's extremely eye-catching. And so for a solo performer, I think that if you're going to be, say, a concerto soloist in front of an orchestra, uh, I, I don't want you wearing all black or something kind of neutral because you are the star. You should be popping in front of the stage. And so I have my little uh, goofy red pants thing that I do. But you know, I think it's it's okay to have that. But I, I also, I don't wear red pants to play Steve Reich mallet quartet or something like that. So, and it's fun. I mean, like I, I have people like, oh, are you going to wear the red pants for that? And I'm like, no, it's it's not, that's not, <laughs> that's not the place for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's fun. I remember my, it was, my second DMA recital, I didn't, I didn't ask any permission or that. I just showed up and had red pants on and Svet was like, well, I guess that's what you're wearing. <laughs> 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 I was there. I, was there. <laughs> I oh can confirm. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you just have to feel, I don't know, you just have to feel good, whatever that, whatever that happens to be. I feel like some, some people like to lean on the expectation of tradition and they feel like oh if they're acting the part they'll play the part a little better and yeah I've, I've never been one to to dress up much um but yeah it definitely has to just like like i wouldn't feel i actually i don't know maybe i would feel good in your red pants ben they're pretty dang cool <laughs> well, uh, to try it out. one of my one of my favorite musicians that that her entire was talked about is uh usual wang and she's known for wearing uh we'll call it scandalous you know short dresses and things like that and she said, yeah, she says, I'm playing for Kobe. If it's sexy music, I need to wear something sexy. So yeah, I, I don't know. I like it. <laughs> Grow up over there, Ksenia. I, I didn't say what you said. I, I just, I, no, I didn't That's say true. It. You didn't say anything. Yeah, the audio podcast has been saved. Video, I don't know. Anyway, but speaking, Ksenia, I think you have, you have something to share with us today. You popped up a little article for us. 
I did. I did. So there was uh, something written about percussion in this year. So January 5th in the San Francisco Classical Voice, Jeremy Reynolds wrote, everything's a drum, percussion hits its stride. So I thought, wow, fantastic. Let's talk about these things that other people think about percussion. It turns out, in my humble opinion, sorry, Jeremy, that it's like the introduction to percussion. Maybe someone who's never seen percussion, like an alien coming to earth would think that I anything said in here is new. Um, but to summarize, the opening of the article says, because probably you can't guess what it's about um, when you hear the title, but it says there are more percussion ensembles uh, than there used to be. True, that's a low bar. Okay, so now we have a few established groups, which never, I mean, also not really true if we look at Third Coast and So and Yarnwire. I mean, we did have Nexus and Black Earth Percussion and all these uh, ensembles 40 years ago, so not exactly new. Um, another quote popped up in the article that was interesting from the New York Times in 2009, um, saying, uh, if you think about it, drums are the new violins, sort of pointing out the newfound ubiquity of percussion on new music programs. Great, we're really, we're really happy about that. So to summarize this very long article that says almost nothing, um, number one uh, point um, comes from Adam Slewinski. Uh, said, why is it uh, people are so ready for drums and rhythm making? In part, it's because the African diaspora has so completely permeated our lives at this point. People have grown up in a culture steeped in these influences, which go back to early jazz and slavery. Playing drums and playing rhythm harkens back to this. So now Motown, Stevie Wonder, Prince and jazz. This has put people in a place where we're ready to acknowledge this cultural influence. We are primed. Uh, I think that's a very interesting free interpretation of people being ready for drums. I, I also find it to be a very strange point because if drums are the oldest of the instruments, then I'm not sure what kind of special preparation we needed now in the 21st century to accept them, but okay. Maybe in the in terms of like classical context. Uh, point number two is that uh, Percussion chamber groups are now so big, and obviously we have a Grammy-winning group, Third Coast Percussion. Um, we're so big because we had such a lack of repertoire that we had to be innovative. Therefore, there's something interesting um, in there. We're more experimental. We're getting new work. Therefore, we get a bit of spotlight. And the third point uh, that I got from this is that um, percussion has this visceral approachable nature um, that is very, it's wonderful to watch and it's wonderful to listen to and the sheer variety of sonic and terminal possibilities um, sort of drives the ensemble's popularity. Um, they also credited the, the uh, the popularity to, you know, Bang on a Can and John Cage and all of the wonderful people and ensembles and musicians, artists who have influenced our existence. However, I think it's lame, but <laughs> sorry, not that anyone cares what I think. Sorry, Jeremy, you wrote an article and I really hope you got paid because people who write about music should be paid and musicians should be paid. I'm editing this, so I could easily like edit this entire section out, but <laughs> could someone way smarter than me, like Julie, please, Say what you think and <laughs> pull, pull me out of this quicksand I'm okay. in, please. <laughs> okay, I, well, I mean, 
Do you really want me to? <laughs> yes, yes, go ahead. Well, I, I thought it, there was this weird dichotomy there that he was kind of bringing, it was like, it was almost like he was kind of glorifying the expansion of this industry. At the same time, it's still extremely niche. Um, I mean, he, he chose to speak to some, some of the only full-time ensembles out there. So I would hardly say that's saying that there, that percussion ensemble as an, as a field, as a career is making waves. Be I mean, because then you, even the, the musician themselves, I can't even remember um, who was it said it, but they said, getting customers in the hall is the hardest thing. Yes, yes. Customers is wonderful. It's like, wait, he just admitted that this is a very, a very difficult and and these are these are the you know the top of the top um so i just thought it was interesting because it especially that line to put that in there um because it was like we are ready but then it was like as if the musician themselves said where are you <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i thought the same <laughs> we we acknowledge the defeat and our glory we have a grammy but it's no that wasn't i'm not even sure that was third coast and i'm sure they i am um... But my, my only thought in this this little article was, um, you, you, and, and it's, I guess it's beyond this article too, like we've heard it over and over, you know, people are saying like, wow, now all of a sudden there's this interest in percussion, but we didn't have percussion like this before. You know, it's like, it, it'd be one thing if percussion existed like it does today back in the 1800s, but it just didn't, you know, so it's not like we've changed or tastes have changed, we just have like a new thing available now. You know, I mean, you can make the same, you can make the same observation about electronic music. It's like, wow, why all of a sudden are people interested in electronic music? It's like, well, it, it, we have no basis of comparison because it didn't exist back then. You know, so I, I don't think it's that like, oh, people are tired of th these old ideas or forms or timbres or ensembles. And now percussion is the new string section. I think that's a really silly thing to say. But, um, but, but I mean, I, I see what they're saying. Uh, that, that was really my only my only thought it's like well of, of course it, it seems it, it seems like it ha has a, a newer interest now because it didn't even exist before you know i'll say one thing in this article that i did like this came right after russell greenberg of Yarnwire was talking about the hardest part is getting people to show up for concerts right um but he talks about kind of kind of the things that we want an audience member who might not be so familiar with chamber music and percussion and contemporary music to think about um, I'll just read you the quote because I thought it was it was good. He wrote, uh, anytime you decide to take in sound as music, it's music. It doesn't mean it's good or bad. You don't really have to question whether it's music or not. It's more about whether you like it or, or not. Whenever I go to an art music concert, I'm going to love some things. I'm going to not like some things. Some things might change my life. Some I might forget before I get home and that's okay. And that's what we tell our audiences, that's okay. You know, and I, I like that even one thing I didn't necessarily agree with is he's like, you don't have to question whether it is music or not. I don't even think you always have to think about whether you like it or not, or is this good or bad, you know, like you can just go and you don't have to worry. But what I like was you don't have to worry about like not getting it. You know what I mean? Like that's one thing I always try to communicate with audience members, especially people that might not know what what's going on in corporal or, you know, dress or these like weird pieces. Like there's nothing that there's nothing that you have to think or feel or understand as you're watching a piece of music like that. Yeah, like it can be a lot better if your mind is just empty, 
you know, it's like little kids, why like little kids are so receptive to really avant-garde new music, you know, is because they don't, they're not looking for like what they're supposed to see in it, you know, right. and they're not, they're not hung up on, oh, is it okay if I clap in between movements and, you know, they're so much more free just to like see it for the bare bones of what it is. I know I kind of echo what Casey's saying. One thing that drives me crazy is when I perform music for a friend that's, you know, my age, that's a non-musician, and after like, well, so what do you think? Like, well, I'm not really a musician, so I don't, I don't really. It's like, no, no, no like, what, what do you think? Like, that, that's why I'm interested. <laughs> well, it's sort of like that analogy we've we've put forth before of, hey, if you know this is a newly discovered piece by Elliot Carter, you're going to be looking for everything great about it when you're either studying it or playing it. But if it's a piece hot off the press from a sophomore composition major, like you're gonna be looking for everything like wrong with it. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just what we do. It's just appeal to authority. And um, you know, the only other thing I was going to say about this article, one of the little headings was infinite possibilities and kind of explaining percussion is so cool because like several composers have said on this very show, like Mark Applebaum comes to mind saying how we're willing to try any anything and the, the point being made here in this article is as we know like anything can be an instrument and if it if it can be tapped and make a sound it's included in our you know our infinite possibilities but I also wonder like what is it going to stay like that for percussionists as we develop because like a violinist were, were they once a stringist like were they expected to play a little lute and a little harp and were they also expected to play a little piano because they're all string instruments. So like as a percussionist supposed to, you know, it's like, no, like it, and it's already happening. Like we already see it happening. Like you already see people specializing more and more all the time, you know, and like marimba is probably the easiest go-to example. Like you can't expect people to be, um, I don't know, you know, um, Gordon style on marimba and be Chris Lamb on orchestral percussion anymore like as as those are diverging more and more and like the rep in both cases are getting harder like you can't expect dave friedman on vibraphone to also be ksenia komjanovic multi-percussion you know or, or carly in theater percussion you know that like that's slowly diverging just like the violin is a violinist not a stringist you know well that's interesting because julie hear things like a generalist. So I would love to I see say, that's <laughs> Well, then I think another one, another specialist, in my opinion, is also a generalist because you still have that generalist that Mark Applebaum wants, who is like willing to try anything. So that, that's another one of them, I think. Yeah, I, I'm sure all of you can relate. I kind of got to this point um, some years ago when I was really working the, the college application circuit and it seemed like every application I would go for, they were adding something else. I was like, what's next? Do I have to teach Chinese? Like, I don't know Chinese. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it reminds me like Robert Van Syce said, you know, I have students apply for jobs that I couldn't get. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and exactly. it, well, and it's and it's yeah, it's so true. And it, it's like it depends on the committee. It's like you, you hear all the time, like, well, this committee member wondered why you didn't play any steel pan. Well, this committee member wanted you to play marching snare. Well, this committee member wondered why you didn't play any drum sets. Just like, oh my god, like everyone has their own idea of what percussion is supposed to be. And because we're still in that phase I was talking about, where like the violinist is being expected also to play harp. So I think as we we continue to develop, that expectation is going to start to be a little more understood and codified. 
Julie, did you want to finish your thought that Casey interrupted? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Thanks, Cassandra. I do, I do agree with that, though, Casey. That I, I think that's that's true. It's it's going to depend on a certain co committee member, but I mean, we're we're all going to have our our highs and lows, the things that we're better at or or not as informed in, and um, I've found at at the university level, it's really interesting though, because I mean, I I was conservatory almost all the all the way through, and um, and then teaching at a university, there is a higher expectation of generalism. Um, there is a higher expectation of being able to do all of it and know every style, know every single world percussion style. Um, and steel pan and this and orchestral and all because it's because a student typically might go to a university, uh, a, at least a state university like mine, um, just because they love music, not necessarily because they they want to do a, you know, go into orchestral or whatever. So any chance Ksenia can be mean to me, she's she takes so it was worth it. That's what she wanted. That was that was not at all directed to you, Casey. I just oh, want to protect her guest. From feeling like we're not very uh, nice hosts. That's it. That's it. Look, why I'm actually going to be nice this entire well, season. Okay. This, this is, <laughs> I actually have a question related to this for Casey. And Casey, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm roasting you. And I, I, I do not mean it that way, to be clear. But like when I, you know, like we can all probably go around the room and talk about different specialties that we have. Like you already mentioned, Carly and theatrical percussion is a match made in heaven. Uh, but Casey, I would say that one of your specialties is is Casey, like you play so much of your own music. Uh, and so like, what, has that ever been a uh, concern in job applications? Like, hey, dude, you submitted five recordings of pieces that you wrote. What about what about some Zanakis or something like that? Like, has that ever been a concern for you that, that you do so much of your own identity as mm -hmm. your repertoire even? Yeah, for sure. And it's because of that balanced reason, like people, you know, that they want someone who's gonna make like, you know what they do at the school better <laughs> it's like one thing i can say with absolute certainty the thing they do at the school is not my music you know the jazz director here does not do any casey cangelosi solo percussion music so yeah no ab absolutely like i think it's real important to show people that hey you ha you have this portion of your of your career that's really advantageous for recruiting and kind of how you like made your mark out there but yeah also like I, yeah i can do the job you know i can absolutely do the job too and and it seems like that's a lot of what people are looking for they want someone that the students will recognize and if they happen to ask their students in the hallway like hey one of our applicants is this person have you heard of that person and the student goes like whoa that person like okay that's that's a really good thing because then all of a sudden the like recruiting radar is really turning in the in the in the professor's head but then yeah of course so yeah I, I've, I've always made an effort to to yeah just include like a couple of my works in that um that that little you know recital that we do yeah, Julie, you're working on a book. Is that right? It is in the very um, beta beta phase. Uh -huh. <laughs> very Can you much tell us about phase. it a little bit? It is well. It's um, you know, it's in part um, based on the the chat I did at PASIC, but um, uh, I I love the idea of kind of. <laughs> coaxing young percussionists, young music. I mean, really, this is just for any kind of musician um, and letting them understand what 
a music career is really all about. So um, I've found that at my university, I'll have a number of students who come in who are really well equipped, equipped to play, but they've actually never had a teacher a formal teacher because, hey, they can watch you online, right? Why, and or they can watch, you know, they, they can watch the, the Vic Firth um, technique courses or whatever. And um, so this is kind of an, an investigation. It's like, it's like a tool book for, for musicians who are wanting to get into the career and everything from, uh, from starting out and where do I go to school? How do I get into school? How do I apply? What kind of practice is involved? What is a, what is a, a degree involved uh, in, in music? And then the whole basic chat of getting out of school and getting into the real world. So it's really meant to be like a handbook toolbox for getting into school, school itself, music school itself, and then options for once you're out of school. Because so often, you know, people will be in their fourth year of school and say, you know, I really don't want to play in an orchestra. I don't know what else to do. Or I really don't know. I don't want to teach. I don't know what else to do. Um, and so this is just kind of an all encompassing, uh, you know, investigation of that. You know, one thing I really appreciated in your PASIC talk, and I think you talked about this some with um, Pete Zambito too, is thinking about the logistics of your life and how your day-to-day -day life is going to look like. And it's something, to me, honestly, like I'm not sure what I would have chosen if 15, year, 15 years ago somebody said to me, like, do you want to work nine to five and, you know, have a family and have weekends off and, and all of that? Or do you want to just kind of work around the clock whenever you can and be completely dedicated to your craft? Um, but would you, would you talk a little bit more about how, how do you, how do you talk about those things with your students and how do you help guide them? And, you know, are there things, did this come from maybe you wishing you had this kind of guidance or thinking about the logistics of your life earlier than you did? I think it's exactly that. I think it's that I wish I had thought about it earlier um, because when, when we are in the phase of eat, breathe and live percussion and practice, um, and I'm not saying we get ever entirely get out of that, of course, but it's just different in school, right? Um, we don't have families and, and paying the bills and all. It's, you know, I'm, I'm finding that my, my students don't have, um, don't have the the big picture mentality of what's actually going to happen after school and so i'm kind of there to be the the realist in um in kind of letting them understand that um that there are eventually going to be a lot of layers of puzzle pieces you know i, I just call them puzzle pieces it's like you know it can be for me it's it's location and being in a city i'm a huge foodie i love restaurants i love going out i love going to see a, a little folk indie band at a, at a dive bar. You know, I, I want to have that in a place where I'm living. Um, it's about, you know, it's about f family. It's about, you know, your partner, it's about friends. Um, and everybody's puzzle pieces are going to be different sizes, right? And when you're a student, you're going to have your, your puzzle pieces are going to be completely different than they might be 10 years post-college. But I think just the awareness that, um, you know, it's it, almost like a preparation for what it's going to be like is important to inform them because 
I don't think we're doing our due diligence. Um, I don't think it's responsible of us to, as educators, to only teach rudiments and how to be a musician, because that is not all it is to be a musician. There's so much more, and it's, and get in a career in music is rarely, rarely, if ever, an apply and interview and here you go kind of kind of job scenario. There's so much more to it, and so I think it's our job to inform them um, of all of these all of these things that eventually will need to fit together. Yeah, absolutely. And then something that I think about too is what are the what are the jobs of the future that they're going to be potentially looking for or able to fill in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years that weren't things that we went through when we finished school with as far as options. Totally. Yeah. Julie, I wanted to ask what is uh, so what was your scenario when you graduated and you got out of it because you said you you wish you had known this back then. Um, what did this lack of knowledge then give you when you graduated? How was your life? You know, I think it was it was just being naive. Uh, honestly, I think it was um, like, well, I'm I'm in in this. This wasn't recently. <laughs> this was many many years ago, but it was kind of it was that entitled mentality, and I think. Um, it was the, well, I've studied with this person and this person and this person. So my, at least my chops say, and my resume say they, that I should be able to get a job. Um, and then it was kind of like, I just entered the real world. And I thought, not only well, where are the jobs? I thought, where are my instruments? I don't even have instruments. It's like, I'd never really been out of, I mean, I, I had been out of school in between master's and doctoral degrees um, where I had purchased some instruments, but I hadn't been one of those regular like gear accumulators over the years. And so I just got out and I thought, I mean, where do I play much less? Where do I get a job? And so it was, it was naive of me, of course. Um, but there was also zero preparation for that. There was no preparation of um, where, where are you gonna go after school? What, what do you wanna do? Where are you gonna go? What kind of instruments are you gonna have? Yeah, and those are, the, those are difficult answers and they're not, uh, well, I'm sure that uh, the book that you're producing and, and the talk that you did will help people think about it a lot. Everybody has to figure that out for themselves because every situation is customizable and that's what's really tough about all of this is that there is no cookie cutter answer. There is no single oasis on this planet that you can go and as a percussionist, you'll be fine. Like you have to figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, so podcast. True. that's so true. But the, the sooner you think it, you're exactly right. There is no cookie cutter answer. And at the same time, the sooner you start preparing yourself, the sooner you start thinking about it, the sooner you start placing, you know, little tidbits of, of networking in LA, if that's where you want to move or Seattle or whatever, four years before you're finished with school, the sooner you might be able to like put your roots down and flourish once you're there. Well, it's that concept of persistence, you know, Angela Duckworth, grit, hard work plus persistence equals success or, or something, it's something like that, but persistence and like not giving up is is in there. And I know I've, I've, I believe I heard you say it somewhere, Julie, uh, either at PASIC or, uh, or Pete's podcast, or maybe both. But um, yeah, and, I, and I've said it on this show before, too. It's like, oh, I want to make a freelance career in Boston. It's like, yeah, you can do that. Just, it's just be ready to stick it out for 10 years. 
you know, like the folks I know who've successfully done that, they're they're doing it and they're not like rich over there or anything. But yeah, it takes like 10 years to get your foot in enough doors and find consistent freelance work. And like we've said before, um, you know, no, no one who is a successful freelancer is hoping to like always going from gig to gig to gig to gig. But no, you have like your consistent gigs you can count on. Like in the summer here, I do stand music festival and and then the uh, Baroque festival comes around and you always get the calls for those things. So you have like some type of predictable life and predictable income. And, and that's that's what a good freelancing life is like that that takes some time to to um, acquire and, and create. Yeah, cool. Well, geez, Julia, thanks so much. This was really fun. Thank you, guys. It was a blast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And congrats on uh, PASIC and just all the great stuff you're doing. That was Dr. Strom, everybody. And thanks, Ksenia. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Ben. It's good to see you all. Thank you. See you. Bye. All right. Bye, bye everybody. Bye.